Sharpies cost me a fortune recently, so I might as well. Yeah, I get a little extra. Hi, I'm Lily Sloan, and this is A Therapist Walks Into a Bar, a podcast that brings therapy to you. People do much worse things for their jobs, so you're good. In this episode, we're going to explore romantic relationships and how they can go so, so wrong, but also what can help. From some brave souls at the bar, you'll hear stories of single, partner, divorce, and it's complicated. Yeah. We only have sex with each other, so Uh, we're... So you are not together. You used to be together. You're not together. You only have sex with each other. We're still friends. How long have you been together? 19 years. 19 years, yep. It's been over four years, but not straight through. Like... Um, it's, it's been a little tumultuous, so a little on and off, or a lot on and off, in the last two years especially. Three months? Yep, about three months. Officially, uh, I guess a little over a year. Um, we've been really close friends for over five years now. Uh, had a little fling in the middle there. <laughs> I don't know that there's any relationship left to save. Also joining me is this guy. I'm Robert Solly, and I'm primarily a couples therapist, although I see individuals as well. Robert has decades of experience as a psychologist, and with his focus on couples, he draws on a variety of modalities to inform his work. When I met with Robert in his home in San Francisco, he took me in like a lost and hungry child. He gave me a glass of milk and a mind-blowing homemade Fig Newton. Oh, good. This is like no other Fig Newton yeah, in the cool? world. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Elizabeth was upset that the raccoons were getting a lot of the figs off the tree, but we managed to salvage a few. Honestly, I could spend a lot of time talking about this Fig Newton, but Robert and my other guests actually said some pretty important stuff, so let's get to it. Valentine's Day is happening, like it does every damn year. Nobody's canceled it. And I think a lot of people have different reactions to this, but I love my friend and colleague Pilar Delano's take on it in an article she wrote for the Huffington Post last week. Here she is with my favorite excerpt. I know I don't have to tell you that February 14th is barreling towards us at superluminal velocity. You also may know that if you're not in a romantic relationship, you might as well crawl back into your lair and resume braiding your body hair or filing the fingernails on your dew claws or whatever it is that single people do because how dare you attempt to join the ranks of those who will not be dying alone. But if you do, however, happen to be in love, well, I'm sure you know better than to erect anything less than the most stunning and enthusiastic tribute to your beloved, replete with chocolate, champagne, sex in more than one position, and possibly a proposal. Unless, of course, you're not in the business of celebrating corporate-sponsored heteronormativity underwritten by Hallmark, Self-Hatred, and Comfort Pastries, or the Holy Day. Despite what the Valentine's Day industrial complex, Disney, and romantic comedies have driven into us about love and relationships, true intimacy is often really messy and scary which I'll get into in a bit. But first, partnering in one form or another has been around for a really long time. But what are relationships good for? With massive cultural shifts around expectations of marriage or partnership, especially as gender roles are less fixed, and with a national divorce rate hovering around 50%, what we expect from our relationships has shifted drastically from physical and financial security 
or fulfilling familial obligations to, well, expectations of love. There are, there are a lot of practical reasons people used to get married that are not necessary anymore, right? So what's left? Robert says that according to Stan Tatkin, a Los Angeles-based couples therapist and author of the 2011 top seller Wired for Love. The purpose of a relationship is to care for each other because otherwise you can just hire somebody to do it. <laughs> so if it's something that uh, a plumber could do or an accountant could do, um, that's not what we're in relationships for. We're in relationships for to care for each other. One single man that I spoke to said he's looking for the right fit. I'm happy to not be in a bad relationship or an unhealthy relationship, but I also feel lonely and would like to be in a relationship. I'm looking for a kind, affectionate woman who I find beautiful, who adores me and, and, and respects the work um, that I do with others, and uh, who I respect and I um, want to help her to, to achieve her dreams. Notice he doesn't mention a drive to fulfill societal expectations of marriage or wanting someone to produce his offspring. While those elements might exist somewhere in his mind, he's prioritizing the emotional components of a relationship. The people I spoke with at the bar all agreed relationships are really hard. So why are they worth it? Yeah, because I don't like being alone. <laughs> What's bad about, what, what, what does being alone feel like that you want to not feel? Oh man, I don't know. It, it's scary. It feels like you're floating with no tether to the ground. There's this two hour period in the morning between five and seven where it's quiet cuddle time and it's just very intimate and very healing and makes it so you can withstand all the other stuff. And there's a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah, we're... When I go places by myself, I, I physically turn to say, look, and because that's how much I want to share it with her. want to be lonely. Right. I or, guess. And it's like satisfying to have the right person that you know you could just be comfortable with and I guess just a partner in life, partner in crime, just someone to kind of come home to and talk to or you know knowing that you can just send them a text or call them and talk about whatever. Oh I just think it's really nice to have someone you can share your day with. Someone who's really interested in what you did the whole day. We got to like know each other as like people first. It's just who we are at our basis. Like, yeah, appreciate that every day. Another thing that's really important that you get with time that you don't get with shorter relationships is you get to be surprised like for a long part of our relationship and even now like people would say oh you're the rock of the family but uh, if you didn't have hard times you wouldn't get to see what other people's strengths are like this past fall was a really hard time for me with my job and I got to see her become the homework tutor and the chef 
and the menu planner and the grocery shopper while you know I fell apart and I wouldn't have gotten to see that aspect of her if we had ended our relationship at 15 years or at 10 years because it took the, to the 19th year to see that. Okay, so if relationships are so great, why are they so hard? What goes wrong? The people I talked to at the bar shared their experiences of failure or challenge points from different expectations of relationships. When you're like two months into a new relationship with someone and you're having an argument about having children and you're both in your early 20s, there's like some strange dysfunctional stuff going on and then sometimes maybe it just spirals from there. To not enough breathing room, so we, we're living with two other housemates and then we're sharing a room and a shared house. So there's just the space aspect, but just we're both we're both totally introverts and we need our like rejuvenation time and there's just nowhere to go and do that. And there's only like two places we can go in the house. And one of them almost always has, or like the living room almost always has people. So we can't have any time apart in the same space. Right, to just do nothing. To testing your partner's love. Even I think for me too, I like to push it as far as I can to see like, is the person going to stay? Are they going to stay there? And with him, I pushed it really far and he always, he's still there. So I think it's maybe a little intentional too, because I really need to know like you're not going anywhere. To getting stuck in negative communication patterns. Cycles that we would get into of, of, of conversations or interactions with each other that would spiral in a negative direction and, and um, experiencing those early on in the relationship but not really identifying them or working to correct them. So over time, that, them sort of uh, calcifying. And, and to not being able to hear your partner. I don't know if the signs were there and I ignored them, or the signs weren't put forth as, this is really important, pay attention. You know, it's kind of like when you make a comment quietly and the person doesn't quite hear it. Or how hard it is to make space for compromise. I think it's hard to be flexible and to listen. Those are the hardest. Like when you feel strongly about something and so does the other person, there's, there are times when it's hard to find the give. There's all sorts of ways people describe what goes wrong. But here, Robert helps lay out a big part of how many couples' problems can be summed up. You have, as I said, two people who can be in very different places and with different sets of feelings. Especially, I'll talk about it in the context of a couple's relationship where the people are, you know, close to each other, they love each other, and that ups the ante uh, in, in a number of ways. Uh, for one thing, everything matters more because they matter more to each other even if they're, at the moment, angry with each other. And for another thing, part of what relationships are about is taking care of each other. So then when both people are feeling something intensely, and especially as is often the case, both people are feeling hurt at the same time, what hurt really needs to heal is to be heard. And the problem is that both people can't be heard at the same time if they're both trying to be heard as well. 
Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Classic. It can seem like our differences are so vast, it's impossible to ever find common ground. And the more we cling to this fear, the vaster the Grand Canyon between us becomes. Through all this, our nervous systems are operating from fight or flight mode, because the one we love and hope so much to trust is the one who can hurt us the most. You know, there's this great line that Terry Real has, which is, um, we hope to find the person that'll heal our childhood wounds, but instead we find the person who sticks the burning spear in our eye. <laughs> which is one of my favorite lines of all time, because he nails it so uh, precisely. When couples come into my office, they often describe their problem as, we need to work on communication. And I'm sure that's true, but there's something sterile sounding about that statement. It doesn't quite capture the full depth of the experience. What lies beneath the communication breakdown is raw stuff, hurt, vulnerability, fear of being too little or too much for someone you love so much. We hope to find the person that will heal our childhood wounds, but instead we find the person who sticks the burning spear in our eye. Let me take you on a detour into attachment theory. This is just the Cliff's Notes, and if you took a college psychology class, some of this might ring a bell. Before this stuff was studied, people didn't really get how separation, physical or emotional, from our caregivers actually has a tremendous impact on our emotional well-being. Here's British psychoanalyst John Bowlby. This, if experience of this sort has the very distressing and upsetting effects that it has, what is the nature of the tie uh, which is disrupted? And um, here, of course, everyone knew the answer. A child is interested in mother because she feeds him. And, um, but I, I was not convinced. If it was just about getting fed, I could reasonably be attached to the lady who makes my burritos. Well, I mean, I kind of am, but whatever. Bowlby began studying attachment because he was concerned about the children in London who were sent away during World War II, their parents trying to keep them safe from the Blitz. German bombers rain fire and high explosive bombs in their most savage attack on London. Here again is the blood, the sweat and tears that Nazi warfare brings to the men, women and children of city, town and village. Here again are the same firefighters who face peril and danger. Through his research, Bowlby correlated negative outcomes such as delinquency, depression, affectionlessness, with prolonged separation from caregivers before the age of five. Perhaps the physical safety couldn't trump the emotional safety of connection with our parents. In 1965, developmental psychologist Mary Ainsworth, Bowlby's student, began studying infant attachment via the strange situation experiment, in which the primary caregiver, typically the mother, left an infant with a stranger. When she returned, the mother attempted to re-engage and soothe her distressed child. Ainsworth observed the infants having a range of reactions to the situation, which she categorized as different attachment styles. For instance, if the mother returned and the child was soothed pretty quickly and could return to playing happily, this child was categorized as securely attached. In other words, missing your caregiver. Wanting them to be close is a healthy thing, when it doesn't disturb you so much that you can't be soothed. Shh, sweetie, please, shh, shh, shh. Mommy's here now, shh, shh, shh. Mommy's here, mommy's here. 
On the other hand, an insecure attachment could look like the child being anxious and afraid of separation, even while mom is in the room, and then difficulty being soothed upon mom's return, which was called anxious resistant, or seemingly complete indifference to mom coming or going, which was called anxious avoidant. And in this case, it's believed they're shut down to attachment because perhaps their primary caregiver has been unreliable and it feels risky to try and depend on them. Shifting back to adult relationships, in the last 10 years or so, we've seen some extremely popular books hit the stands, like Stan Tatkin's Wired for Love, Amir Levine and Rachel Feller's Attached, and Dr. Sue Johnson's Hold Me Tight, which all focus on adult attachment in romantic relationships and connect this directly back to those early childhood experiences. Also, with advancements in neuroscience, we're able to confirm the deep impact feelings of love and connection have on the brain and nervous system. For instance, neuroscience shows us how emotional pain due to disconnection from our primary person actually causes physical pain, because connection is actually necessary for survival. Those early experiences of being seen, heard, attuned to, or perhaps not, like in the case of emotional or physical neglect or abandonment, influence our attachment style throughout our life and therefore our adult relationships. Who, when you were a kid, who did you go to for support, like emotional support? Nobody. Nobody. Yeah. Nobody. Yeah. So, so pretty young, you found out that wasn't something you could do. I don't think. I don't think we dealt with anything. I think we just kind of packed it in a box and, you know, put it away. I'm just not why maybe I can't deal with things now. I just shut down and put it away. My dad left when I was young, like three. And then my stepdad left when I was eight. So part of it is just having a really hard time trusting that someone will stick around, I guess. Um. Some attachment traumas are really clear. But even if you had a relatively normal childhood, whatever that means, with no big traumatic events, you can still experience insecurity in your attachments. Perhaps there was a subtle disconnect between you and your caregivers. Perhaps there was just something always in the air, some sense of unsafety in those connections. I've always been pretty anxious about being abandoned, and from all my years of therapy, I haven't really uncovered a specific childhood trauma that would cause this. And maybe it doesn't really matter. All I know is those feelings do go way back, and they're very real. It can be helpful for any of us to understand our patterns across relationships and what's coming up in your current relationship. Do you tend to pull for connection or reassurance when you feel anxious, or do you retreat? Are you easily soothed, or is it difficult for you to feel safe after something disrupts the connection? Beneath it all, whether you anxiously move away from or towards your partner, many researchers and therapists believe the anxiety is the same. Can I trust you to care for me the way I need to be cared for? Or will you reject, abandon, and hurt me? 
in adult relationships, instead of a calm, soothing mother and a crying baby, you've essentially got two crying babies, at least on the inside. And sometimes that crying baby is running the show without us even realizing it. Ideally, what you want is for one person to be able to kind of momentarily, and the moment might even take a while, it might not just be a moment, momentarily one person has to be able to kind of say, okay, I know that my hurt will get addressed eventually, but I'm going to kind of try to let go of that a little bit so that I can hear my partner, and then once we've addressed my partner's hurt, then we'll come back to my hurt. But the challenge is that a lot of times, especially with people who are insecurely attached, you know, who have difficulty trusting and, and uh, who have been hurt a lot, you know, developmentally, it's really hard for them to have that kind of patience and to know that eventually, you know, they will be taken care of. Um, and we both go through that where we're kind of just reacting without quite fully understanding what it is about it, but it's just, you're the closest person to me, you're my best friend and my partner, so you're dealing with both <laughs> responsibilities, essentially. Because it's like we're each other's advisor and like the cause of the problem at the same time, so we're trying to like juggle this uh, Conflict of interest. Yeah, it's right? very <laughs> difficult, like it's not an easy thing. Like, We've talked a lot about where the problems lie, and that in itself can be soothing, sometimes. Just to understand that it's not so much about right and wrong, it's not about you or your partner being all bad. We come into relationships with lots of stuff, and it's natural that we can trigger each other's fight-or-flight responses because love is so connected to safety. But maybe you're saying, so what now? I've been in this shitty pattern so long, what could possibly help? While there are a lot of great approaches to couples therapy, we're going to focus more on Dr. Sue Johnson's Emotionally Focused Therapy, or EFT. EFT has been studied for a long time with some pretty exciting results. And in the last few years, these studies have been expanded to include a more diverse range of couples, like poly couples, same-sex couples, and more. I have to say I've personally benefited from this approach. Here, Robert describes how EFT comes at the problem. That there's a cycle that happens between the people, which is basically that mutual triggering that I was talking about before. And um, what needs to happen is, first of all, both people need to understand what that cycle is. For example, most, most of the cycles can be described in terms of some form of what they call a pursue-withdraw cycle, where one person is usually seeking connection, and that's the pursuer. They are maybe seeking connection in ways that aren't necessarily working that well in the cycle. Telling the other person all the things they're doing wrong that are not creating connection. And then the other person who's the withdrawer, in response to feeling criticized, pulls away. And the more they pull away, the more it triggers the pursuer to seek connection, which triggers the withdrawer to protect themselves. And so you can see it's sort of a vicious cycle. When you would show a lot of emotion, what would he do? He would get more mad. 
Okay. You would get, you would feel more mad when she'd get emotional. I also would like to get to the bottom of like why that's happening. Uh-huh. So, yeah. But, uh, it, would, it would be frustrating. Probably. I mean, because I mean, to me, it was like nothing to get mad about. But obviously, uh-huh. to her, it was. Yeah. So that, that's why. So then, when when he would get mad, what would you? What would happen inside of you? I would kind of be scared because he normally doesn't really get mad. So if I would get emotional and he would get upset, it would just make me more upset. So I was like, oh great, now you're mad at me and I'm already mad at you. So it was just like an endless cycle, kind of. When there's tension, he likes space and I like comfort. You know, when I'm stressed, I need to have hugs. And when he's stressed, he needs to just like take a walk. And when we're both stressed, it's like, oh, but uh, I, I want to be right next to you. And he's like, no, 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 I want to be alone. And so. Pulling and pushing and pulling and pushing, pulling and pushing, pulling and pushing, pulling and pushing, pulling and pushing. So the first thing is for the couple to understand what that cycle is and kind of have an overview so that they can kind of make sense of what their current behavior is about and to reframe it in terms of attachment so that they can see that it's not just that the one person is critical and that the other person uh, is ignoring the first person, but that um, there are positive motives for each of them. One is seeking connection, the other is sort of self-protecting. These by way of the pursuer talking about the need for connection and the withdrawer talking about how painful it is for them to feel criticized, and for both of them to understand that what they both want really is, you know, to be able to connect. What Robert points to here is that it's not so much about the content, but about the process. Whatever you're fighting about, when you're both triggered, things can get polarized pretty quickly, and you can't hear each other, which activates and enforces your individual attachment wounds. Naming the cycle that happens can help you and your partner see the familiar pattern from a new perspective, that whatever you're saying or doing, underneath it, you actually want to connect. So how do we get out of this cycle? Identifying it can help a lot because then you and your partner can catch it sooner. Like that moment your head kind of jerks back to wake you up when you're falling asleep at the wheel. Over time, that moment of shifting direction, of remembering you actually have a choice in how you react, happens earlier and earlier in the cycle. But when you've been in this cycle a while, it can feel scary to try to break it. Robert describes how an emotionally focused therapist would approach this. Part of what happens with EFT is that the entry point into the cycle is actually through the withdrawer. So it's getting the withdrawer to be able to say what's going on with them. Because typically the withdrawer is pulling away and shutting down and getting silent. And so their part of going against the grain for themselves is just to be able to say whatever's going on for them. And even to start by saying, I'm feeling like withdrawing instead of withdrawing. If you can say what you're feeling like doing instead of actually doing it, that's a step in the right direction, right? And anything that they can say about what's going on for them is bringing them out of withdrawal. While the withdrawer is getting some focus, it's important for the pursuer, who tends to present as anxious and demanding, I know to be able to sit with their discomfort and self-soothe. And this goes both ways. This is an important part of either partner being able to listen to the other while simultaneously feeling hurt. And this is what's really hard, especially with insecure attachment. There has to be a kind of trust that it will come back 
you know, that you will be taken care of eventually. And so that's partly the function of the therapist is holding that place, you know, so the therapist is kind of being the placeholder or the bookmark or whatever to, to know that, you know, we will come back to you. Life is often uncomfortable. And whether it's in couples therapy or individual therapy, Robert and I both agree that a major part of a therapist's role is not to make people happy, but to help them cope with life's inevitable pain. Glennon Doyle Melton says, everything is dependent on our ability to sit with discomfort and not numb it, not reject it, and not use it to hurt other people. Everything beautiful comes from there. By building that tolerance for discomfort, by developing our self-soothing skills, we can listen better, and the things we learn about our partner will further help us over time soothe ourselves when they aren't able to. Attacking or withdrawing, those are kind of the two stances that don't work. Um, and while I'm at it, the two stances that do work are either what Dan Wilde calls confiding, which is the, you know, vulnerable, talking about the vulnerable feelings, or empathizing, which is a little bit more difficult because you have to get outside of yourself. And that's, you know, again, kind of like having to, being able to, settle yourself enough to really put yourself in the other person's place, both cognitively and emotionally. And taking the time apart before you try to resolve. Like, try, trying to resolve it when you're heated just doesn't work. It doesn't mean that when you're the heated one, you don't try, but it, it's recognizable <laughs> that it just try. doesn't work. There's this idea of the timeout for couples, which some people use and some people don't. So I call it a calming break, and I think calming break is a little bit more descriptive too, because really what it is is like a circuit breaker to interrupt the pattern uh, and to let both people cool down. Because often, if both people are hurt at the same time, which is more often the case when things get stuck, the timeout provides a way that they can both kind of settle themselves. We need to take a timeout. One of us has to man up and say, one of us needs to go. One of us needs to leave the room, leave the house. Some, leaving the room wasn't enough. We've decided that somebody has to actually leave. And sometimes it's me, and sometimes it's her. We have a kid. Um, so one of us has to go before it gets really bad. And then ideally come back to the issue at a later time. I think of it as kind of a first aid step. It's, you know, it's not a long-term goal, right, to be taking timeouts all the time but it's a way to kind of interrupt the pattern and for people to be able to potentially see themselves. It takes 20 or 30 minutes for them to settle down just physiologically if they were not thinking any thoughts, uh, any negative thoughts, and were able to just kind of relax for 20 or 30 minutes, then that's how long it would take. But the problem is that uh, Typically, you know, we don't do that. Typically, we're running the same negative thoughts and self-justifications and irate uh, self-righteousness, right, that we were doing in the argument, right? And it takes quite a while sometimes for that to settle down. It can take days for some people. So um, then there's a number of things that, that people can do in that interim time period, that 20 or 30 minutes or however long it takes to kind of... Um, Basically, I see it as kind of jamming those thoughts, you know, or finding ways to, you know, get out of those thoughts. And aside from just jamming the thoughts, there's breathing. And um, basically, if you just slow your breathing down, it activates the parasympathetic side of your nervous system, which is calming. If you do it for five or ten minutes, 
that may be all you need and the benefits of breathing slowly for five or ten minutes last for two or three hours. This process of developing stronger understanding, empathy, and trust over time can help us develop a common language. One couple I spoke with haven't gone to therapy, but what they have done is co-create a metaphor they can both understand. So when their cycle starts up again, they have the shorthand for, this is not personal, I care about you, and I need some space. They describe building the foundation of a house. And within the same metaphor, they enjoy creatively imagining the things they want and need from the relationship. I think it started from talking about uh, the walls that we have and naturally progressed from there. We both have very uh, strong personal defenses and it's easier to create this object in our minds to figure out what we need to do instead of just throwing words at each other that like might not be interpreted in the same way from person to person. Whereas anyone can like imagine a house, anyone can imagine a wall. Like I I kinda think about it in a way we've we've created this like visual painting that is our relationship and every time we have something to bring up we, we go back to that and then we build off of it and, which I think is really cool because it's a lot that can be left unspoken like you don't actually have to go over it again you just like remember that thing we talked about eight months ago yeah so that let's build that porch on the side and that means something else <laughs> people often think couples therapy is for couples who've been together a long time married in crisis about to divorce But I could say, as a person who's not married, couple therapy has changed my life. No matter what happens, the growth I've experienced and the growth I've seen for the couples I work with is transferable to every aspect of life. It's about deepening into understanding yourself in a relationship. What you need, what sets you off, what turns you on, what pours salt into your wounds. The process can help us create both the boundaries and the closeness we so desperately need to give and receive love to care and be cared for, which might be all that really matters at the end of the day. But even if therapy isn't for you or your relationship, the point is to open up awareness to what lies beneath the triggers and the defensiveness, to open up to those soft spots and find ways to let the other in, even if it's messy and scary. Therapist Walks Into a Bar is produced by me, Lily Sloan. The theme song is by Topher M. Lewis, and the song you're hearing right now is Friends Till the End by Derailed Freight Train. You can find links, citations, and all kinds of other information at atherapistwalksintoabar.com. Thank you so much to Robert Soley, Pilar Delano, and the people I spoke with at the bar. You're keeping my love of this podcast alive. Join me for next month's episode on substance use and harm reduction. And please follow on Facebook and Twitter, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, share, and sign up for the newsletter.
Also, by leaving a review in iTunes, you can help me generate some more listeners. So, you get it. Thanks for listening.